Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest, Joe Wallenstein, has the right to remain silent, but instead he's going to talk about his new book, Flynn and Miranda, Your Right to Remain Silent, a historical novel that follows two people from two very different worlds who come together in one blazing moment of legal history. The book, published by Trinday Press, is available on Amazon and all the usual places. And for everything about Joe Wallenstein, you can go to joewallenstein.com and follow him on Facebook at Joe Wallenstein. And Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. You have an intriguing background because you are teaching at USC. You've written two other books, one called Practical Filmmaking, a handbook for the real world, and Nothing Dies for Film. And you're director of physical production in the School of Cinematic Arts at the University of Southern California, otherwise known as USC, as I mentioned. So, Joe, what are some of your other projects that you've been involved in in Hollywood? I was the first producer of the TV series Knots Landing. I did a couple of years of Seventh Heaven, did Jake and the Fat Man in Hawaii, did the miniseries uh, Dallas, the early years. But I think one of the things your uh, listeners might find either funny or just interesting my second job, when I got into the Director's Guild in New York, I was a day-checking second-second on the first Godfather movie. I was so far down the food chain, I was like the little red light on the caboose. <laughs> but, but I was there. Hey, well, that... <laughs> when I got to USC and kids found out I had worked on that, that's the only credit. My unrecognized, <laughs> very low-paying, long hours, very unconsequential contribution to the Godfather. It's the only credit they care about. I could have taken the next 30 years off. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So how did you decide to go on to this particular topic, which is about something that's very important, and yet you made it into a fictional account? Well, my journey on this project started a very long time ago. It started the night Miranda was killed, because in those days I was living in Brooklyn, and I used to stay up all night writing in those days on a yellow pad with a box full of sharpened pencils. <laughs> Always sharpened pencils, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, it came on the news that Miranda had been killed. But what really jumped at me is that they caught the guys who killed him, but the police did not have their Miranda cards with them, those little cards which they're supposed to read the subjects their rights. But the barmaid was rifling Miranda's pockets looking for identification, and she came across a card that he, he had been selling them as uh, souvenirs. And he, she handed it to the arresting officer, and the arresting officer began to read the suspects their rights, rights one for them in the name of the guy they just killed. And I thought, oh my gosh, if a writer just sat down and wrote that, you'd roll your eyes and think, oh, please, come on. But that's actually what happened classic case of truth is stranger than fiction. And it really sparked an interest in everything Miranda. But living in Brooklyn, pre-computer, and all I could do was go to the libraries and see what you could find about the case. And there's a ton of stuff about the case, but very little about the, the real lives of the people who were involved. So I realized that if I was ever going to tell this story, I had to find the attorney, John Flynn. And that took some doing and some time, but I eventually did, and I went to see him. Well, just out of curiosity, Joe, why did it take you a while? I mean, don't they have a bar registry where you could locate the guy? Well, the, the, what I mean by that, I was living in New York. He was in Arizona. 
I didn't want to just uh, write him or call him. I wanted to go see him. But I did get to California. But then, because I was working, I didn't have the money to go see him. So I was down in Mexico doing a picture, and the executive producer and I used to go to dinner. And I told him the story, and he said, you got to get to this guy, Flynn. I said, well, I'd like to. He says, look, don't procrastinate. Call him. Make a date. I'll pay for the trip. We'll go. Let's go. Well, that's what we did. And what's interesting, uh, I thought we're going to go to this big, fancy office building, you know, high-priced attorney. When we got to Phoenix, we drove around to the address, and it was this one-story red brick building, and I thought we'd gone to the wrong address. We went into the building, and there was one only, only one office, and on the wall was the Teamster logo, the wagon wheel and the horse's head, and I thought, this isn't where we're supposed to be. This is the Teamster offices. But there was one door open, so we went, and I go in, and here's this guy, big guy, silver hair, Marine Corps tattoo on his arm, wearing a Teamster shirt, actually. I said, oh, I must have the wrong place. I'm looking for John Flynn. He said to me, you found him. Amazing. So we went in, had this big ashtray on his desk. He must have smoked endless, three packs a day, I'm guessing. And I said, we introduced ourselves, and we sat, and we talked. The end of the day, we had to stop several times just so we could breathe. We had to go out the door because <laughs> we were not smokers. Um, at the end of it, the, the executive producer, a fellow named Robert Stambler, he said, look, I got to get back to L.A. You can stay if you want. So Flynn invited me out to his ranch in Gilbert, Arizona. He had a pecan ranch. His friends used to refer to it as the nut house. <laughs> and uh, I went out and I spent the day with him and we just walked and talked. And then... Three months. I was supposed to go back down there and meet him in January. And he passed away suddenly. And when he passed away, I realized there's only one person that could tell his story the way he told it to me, and that is me. So I saw not only an opportunity, but I felt a kind of an obligation. And as time went by, and there's a whole history with this, I once pitched it to Brad Pitt. I wrote a script that was optioned twice. But as time went by and I got older, I thought, you know, Joe, if you don't put this on paper and put it out, when you go, it goes. No one will ever hear this story. And I didn't want to be the guy that wrote the song T for One. You know what I mean by that? I didn't want to develop the soft drink called Fix Up, right? The guy who almost gets it. So I sat down over this past year and I wrote it as a, as a novel. But why a novel versus nonfiction, I guess, is the, is the crux of it. In other because words... Because I think this should have been a movie. If you looked at it from a point of view of how much was fiction and how much was not, is it 50-50? Is it 75-25 in terms of percentages? It's mostly as, well, one of the things I did in the book is my interview with Flynn. So you can look at what's in the book and see what I did. I dramatize what is in my uh, interview with him. And I did change names because uh, there was another character that's Jermaine named John Treadaway. There's John Flynn, and there was John Frank, the appellate attorney. Well, I didn't want to do John, 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 so I changed Treadaway's name to Daniel, right? There's a shift in timeline, but I would say it's 80, 90% true. Given your decision to write it that way, what sparked it in you, besides the interesting story and, and what happened to these two different people, what was it about the actual legal principle, in other words, your right to remain silent, that struck you as that, you know, that, that sparked to write this book? First of all, I think two things. I think that one of the remarkable things about the Miranda decision 
is that this country, one of its basic principles is fairness. Not just about Miranda. Is anybody treated fairly? And what is fairness? Because Miranda was guilty. This isn't an attempt to exonerate Miranda. It's not even, in a funny sense, it's not even about him. It's about the concept of fairness. The other thing that I find really interesting is that Miranda and the, Miranda, the history of Miranda starts in Phoenix, Arizona in 1962. In 1962, in Phoenix, Arizona, that was the birthplace of Barry Goldwater and extremism in the pursuit of liberty is no vice, the start of the conservative movement. And every chief justice since then, whether it was Earl Warren or Warren Berger or William Rehnquist or John Roberts, they've all protected Miranda, conservative judges. And yet, when most people think about the decision, they think it's a liberal decision because it, it helped the poor, the unknowledgeable, the indigent, the uh, uneducated, the person lost in society who doesn't have the same grasp of fairness as you or I. So I thought, gosh, how, in today's world, how many things can be embraced by both right and left? Yeah, that's a good point. That is, that is one of those bipartisan approaches. Right, right. To, and there's a precious view of them now. Right. So I thought, but from a practical standpoint, when you write something, particularly a book, you don't have to ask anybody's permission. I don't need money. I mean, to make the movie, I would, yes. But in terms of writing the book, I didn't need anybody's permission. In terms, I didn't need a distributor. I didn't need a financier. I didn't need a director. I didn't, you know what I mean? I didn't need True, but, but technically, wait a minute, I just want to clarify that. You didn't need permission to write the book. Why would you need permission to do the movie other than if you have the money, you could make the movie yourself? Well, no, no, no. I'm sorry. You're right. It's good. I'm glad you clarified that. I don't mean permission. I mean somebody else's permission, the guy with the, or gal with the money. Okay. So you, the, yeah, to write a book, you don't need an investment, but to make a movie, you need the money. Correct. Okay. Just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. And also, too, we should clarify that we're not talking about the Carmen Miranda decision, which allowed you to wear fruit <laughs> on your hat. You know, that's, that's a whole separate issue. Not only is that funny, but I can tell you that when I uh, was pitching the project or around the time I, I got to uh, Brad Pitt, I remember being in a meeting and going on for like a half hour and really passionate and enthusiastic. And at the end of it, the, one of the development people said to me, gee, that's interesting. I didn't realize Miranda was a person. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, do you really think I came in here pitching a project about what? An upright vacuum cleaner? <laughs> it's Hollywood, so, Joe. It's Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Um, <laughs> so when you started putting the book together, and, and even though it's fictional, but obviously based on fact, how much research then at that point, beyond the interviews with Flynn, for example, and other material you had, how much additional research did you feel you well, needed to do? I spoke to a lot of people. I spoke to one of his arresting officers. I spoke briefly to Janet Napolitano and a federal judge up in San Francisco. Uh, I was trying to get a handle on the personality of John Frank. So, yeah, I did, I did as much research as I could do. But again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not trying to rewrite history uh, on a legal basis. I'm trying to be truthful to John Flynn, because I'm sympathetic to Flynn. He paid all the dues. Yeah, when you say he paid all the dues, why did he have to pay those dues? What was it about his involvement that caused the grief? 
Well, in those days in Phoenix, like I said, it was very conservative. The police hated the decision because they thought it was the end of police work. And he had been a prosecutor and very much part of the, the club, so to speak. And when he took this really uh, controversial case, it started a crack in the relationships. Flynn had, in his prosecutorial days, had the audacity to bring uh, tax evasion charges against the Arizona Republic. He was involved with a guy, he got blown up in a car. He was a journalist in Phoenix. But the police felt that he was holding up the city, airing the dirty laundry, if you will. Miranda never claimed that they mistreated him. They didn't. Nobody laid a finger on him. He just, what he went through wasn't fair. He said to Flynn, when the cops came to my door, they asked me to go with them. And standing there in the doorway, I didn't know if I had the right to tell those guys to go to hell. When Flynn got to the Supreme Court, he said to uh, Earl Warren, at that moment, the only person who could tell him what his rights are is the officer who has come to arrest him. And that really, I think, that and some other things that are in the book about why Earl Warren would have been sympathetic to that argument. He, Flynn tried to downplay it. He goes, oh, no, no, it wasn't anything I did. It was just the facts of the case. Meanwhile, he was the guy who went up first to, to the Supreme Court. He set the, the, uh, the table, if you will, and he made the compelling arguments. You mentioned... They were so ready to hear that case that the justices started to argue amongst themselves which is also in the book. The book is, I got the last transcript of that Supreme Court case in hard copy. I think after that, they went over to microfilm or, or digital. It's hard to get now, but I have it. But I feel like I've strayed from your question. No, you, you haven't. I just was curious as to, just to specify a little bit more, though, you did answer it, but I just needed you to focus on one element, which is what were some of the consequences to Flynn as a result of going up to the Supreme Court and having the Miranda decision. In other words, he was physically, he was relentlessly attacked by the, in the newspapers. They brought charges against him, tried to get his license to practice law. He was physically attacked and harassed. His wife was, at the time, was harassed. And at the same time, the law firm was trying to do Miranda. They were doing Westinghouse Corporation, the largest products liability case of its day. And so there was an internal conflict because... When Miranda first came public, it was billed around town as the Mexican who raped the white girl. And Flynn, when he took the case, said, there's got to be something fundamentally wrong about a case that's billed as the Mexican who raped the white girl. Go find the jury that's going to give you impartiality when that's how the case is headlined in the papers, right? So he was the standalone guy against the establishment. And... There's more to the story because I don't want to give away the whole book. No, no. Miranda was tried a second time. And the second time, everybody knew it was Miranda. First time, it was the Mexican who raped the white girl. Second time, it was Miranda. And they really felt, Arizona, particularly Phoenix, that they had their dirty laundry aired on the the national stage. When you mentioned that he was punished and you gave some examples, he still retained his law license, correct? He survived the attempt to disbar him, correct. And did he end up, because of where you found him at the time you started to meet him, he ended up working for the Teamsters or with the Teamsters? No, no, no. He, uh, no. he had his own practice. 
He just happened to be in that building. Oh, okay. Giving him a shirt. I'm glad. I'm glad we clarified that. Yes. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Don't start that. <laughs> I worked with Teamsters for 40 years. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to know you drive a truck, Joe. That's uh, anything that works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know and, what they say in the film business? What are the two most important questions? Where do you park the trucks, and what time's lunch? <laughs> Yeah, you've been involved. Tell us some of the movies you've been involved in, and we're going to come back to you a little bit more about Flynn and Miranda, your right to remain silent. But I'm just curious about your background beyond USC. And and, and clearly, your two books both sound interesting to read. And I'm actually going to read them. One is A Handbook for the Real World and Nothing Dies for a Film, because you have this incredible safety record at USC. Yeah, we do. And yeah. by the way, that book's 45 years old. You can double that number. It says 15,000. We're up to 30,000 projects without a single injury. Absolutely Of which amazing. I'm very proud. But you have to understand, USC, these projects aren't all feature-length movies. There's a lot of very, very small projects yes. up through the thesis projects, which yes. are considerably larger. Yeah, but Joe, you're working with students, so accidents yes. can happen. Yes. That, that's the, the challenge. Anyone from 18 to 28. Amazing. So there are different levels of maturity and, you know, all kinds of things. But that's one of the joys of the job is I love being around the young people. They're just so, they don't know what they can't do. (laughs) Exactly. Do your students know about this book? Well, they know about it. They're pleased for me. They support me. But I think they are more focused on their own projects than they are about learning about this. I just think... I mean, what I really think, other than do I want to make it as a movie and do I want everybody to know what a great guy I am, what I really think is that what this country lacks at the moment, and it's a big statement, so it's not true of everybody, but in general, there is a lack of intellectual curiosity. You don't have to agree or disagree with Miranda. You don't have to be in conflict with the police for it to be germane. But wouldn't you want to know about something you've heard about your entire life? You know, I mean, that's my, maybe I'm a naive in that regard, but that is how I view it. I think what happens now, Joe, is there is a lack of curiosity or intellectual yeah. curiosity because everybody has staked out positions in different spheres of right. discourse and they're not going to be able to have. When people yeah. say it's time for a conversation about something, it's really not. It's time for a lecture. That's why people tune out. So yeah. when you hear an institution say, oh, it's time for a, a, a conversation about race, it's really not a true conversation about race. It's a lecture about race coming from a particular point of view. So uh, what you're advocating is a real conversation, whether you agree with the Miranda decision or you don't agree with the Miranda decision. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fundamentally a piece of both sides of the aisle. It's a conservative construct that's been embraced by liberals. I would think if, if, listen, this is self-serving, I recognize, I would think it's a rallying cry for a plea. Hey, let's agree on what we agree on and then respectfully disagree with what we disagree on. Right, exactly. By the way, I have no illusion that if you show this book to 100 lawyers, they're all going to say, oh, yeah, he got it right. He's the best. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 99 of them will tell you what I got wrong. Of course. (laughs) They're going to have a conversation with you, Joel, but it's actually a lecture. So there you go. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get back to Flynn and Miranda. So what was the most surprising thing in your research that you found and incorporated into the book, which, again, is a fictionalized book, but it's based on true events and people? Right. The book is fictionalized in the sense that I want you to see the movie when you read it. Right. What's the most uh, interesting or surprising? Well, I didn't expect Flynn was married five times, and I scrupulously avoided that for a number of reasons. But I thought... 
my God, how do you become this attorney, this successful, manage five families, you know, two sets of children, five wives? I mean, they wasn't all at the same time, but I mean, just say over the course of his life. But when you look at his backstory, he was a combat Marine in the Pacific. He was a young prosecutor in the Phoenix District Attorney's Office. He went to law school, got his license, was an attorney for a very high-profile case in Phoenix in which the wife of a very wealthy guy was kidnapped, and they got the guy who kidnapped her, and Flynn got the guy off, and the guy repaid him by not giving him any money. But he (laughs) caught the attention of Lewis and Roca, which was the large law firm. But while he was on his way to being John Flynn, he was a serial gambler in Vegas. He hunted for emeralds in the uh, Amazon. I mean, he was just one, and he was his own. He had a pilot's license. He was just bigger than life in every respect. And as an attorney, they used to say that when he did a summation, other lawyers would come to hear his summations, that he was really at the top of his game. Do you think it was the cigarettes that got him at the end? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. That's always, yes, uh, I do. That's always the way. Um, Gosh, I mean, he must have, in the time I was with him, he had to have gone through a cart. When we were interviewing him, he would put out, he would light the other cigarette with the embers of the one he just finished. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's definitely a uh, chain smoker, as they used to say. Oh, yeah. So yeah. when you, you uh, clearly you knew that you wanted to talk with him, because as a non-smoker, you were willing to put up with all the smoke and all of the stink coming from the cigarettes in your <laughs> I suit, right? I didn't know until I walked into the room just how much he smoked. Right. I would have stood outside and talked to him through the window. <laughs> yeah, but once you got going, you, I'm sure you... Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know. g- give me the measure of the man when you're sitting there talking with him, and clearly this is after the whole deal with Miranda, but you're sitting there talking with him over a period of time. Did you get a sense of, as you said, he was larger than life, was he, even when you were talking with him at that point, larger than life? I, I, I Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I'm not, I'm not a guy who gets starstruck. I've worked with a lot of high pro, pro I was starstruck with him. Because here's this guy, he had a great voice. Had a great, very, yeah. I mean, actually, somewhere I have recordings of him before the court. But to sit and talk to him in a conversation like that, I really was awestruck by him. This is a guy who had been to the mountain, who stood before the Supreme Court, made an argument, not alone, other people followed him, this was a big ACLU case, but who was part of a process that changed the face of the legal system in this country. Because in the wake of Miranda, it jarred loose uh, recognition that the system was in need of an overhaul. And a couple of years later, that's where the, the Burger Commission came in and created the, they put together a whole group of scholars and judges and attorneys and came up with the Code of Criminal Conduct, which is in place uh, in all 50 states. So in the end, Flynn was vindicated. And it Arizona show- was the first state to adopt that. And it shows that the system can change. That's correct. Which a lot of yeah. people who are impatient in today's world don't realize, if you look at the arc of history, that the system changed over a long That's right. Of time. I totally agree. Because yeah. look at this. In 1962, it was legal to be taken from your home, accused of a crime, kept in prolonged police custody, and to, uh, denied legal counsel, and tricked into confessing. And nobody did anything wrong. That was the system. Well, you can believe every lawyer worth his salt said, the, sure, he confessed. They, they 
threatened him to, or to, you know, beat him to within an inch of his life and blind the jury to all the facts. The confession was always inherently tainted because that's how defense lawyers played it. Now, somebody goes into court with a confession where they've been Mirandized, never gets thrown out. In fact, funny, we're talking about this now. And they just had a case, I think, it, Brooklyn, Iowa, or Indiana, someplace, a murder case where they got the guy, and the arresting officer almost gave him the rights. She left out a key line, and the court tossed it out. In a murder, and they got this guy, they know he did, and I think he was convicted. But they still... If you're not properly Mirandized, it cannot be used against you in a court of law. And that's a significant part of it. And had the judge not ruled that way, they could have appealed it, and then it would have Absolutely. been... Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a funny way to reference it. I've watched all 456 episodes of Law and & Order, and I've heard people Mirandized 456 times. It's just part of what, and in fact, when they went to the court, one of the things they were trying to do was they just wanted an even playing field. There's 18,000 police agencies in this country. They just wanted an even playing field. Think about this for a second. You get stopped. The long arm of the law taps you on the shoulder and says, sir, you're under arrest. (gasps) The whole weight of the government just fell on you. The arresting officer, the prosecutor, the courts, what are you going to do? Well, the very next second, the full weight of your government comes to your defense. Oh, by the way, you don't have to talk to us. You have an attorney. Oh, you don't have one? Don't worry, we'll get it for you. You can't pay? We'll pay. And by the way, we'll make the evidence known to you, and you'll be judged by a group of your peers, and you can get, right? The whole government comes to your defense. No other place on earth operates like that, to that degree. So I just think one of the things, and we've lost it in in all the politics and the back and the forth and, you know, all the what's going on now in the world and at large, we're a country that cares about fairness. Did guilty people go free in the wake of Miranda? Yes, I'm sure they did. I can't tell you all of them, but I know of one or two cases. But the point was, and this was never about guilt or innocence about Miranda. It was about fairness. And I just think that I'm very proud of my country for caring about that. That may sound corny and convenient, but I honestly believe that. Well, I think that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Joe Wallenstein, whose new book, Flynn and Miranda, Your Right to Remain Silent, is an historical novel that follows two people from two very different worlds who came together in one blazing moment of legal history. The book, published by Trine Day Press, is available on Amazon and all the usual places. And for everything about Joe Wallenstein, go to joewallenstein.com, and you can follow him on Facebook at Joe Wallenstein. Joe, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.